Welcome to Whores Talk Horror. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello, I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. And welcome to Whores Talk Horror. During our one-year anniversary trivia episode a couple weeks ago, there was a question that we both got wrong about the name of the serial killer who was the inspiration for the movie Scream. His name is Danny Rowling, a.k.a. the Gainesville Ripper, who brutally murdered five young students at the University of Florida in 1990. We had previously done an episode about killers who inspired horror movies or killers who were inspired by horror movies. And after hearing about how Danny Rowland inspired the creation of the serial killer from Scream, we decided to do a part two episode about other real life murders that inspired horror movies. We were planning on discussing Rowling, who I didn't think seemed, uh, he didn't sound familiar to me, but then after reading more about him, I realized that I actually was familiar with the case, and I actually first heard about him when I was in high school from reading an article in YM Magazine. Oh my gosh, Sharon. Are you serious? (laughs) I'm totally serious, and I also applied to go to that college afterwards because of course I did. Like after it was said, I was like, oh, yeah, that name now sounds familiar. But I have to say that I was kind of ashamed that I didn't like just spit it out and know it. But you know what? We're not all perfect. So there you go. We all learned something. We did. We learned something that day. Um, So I just decided it'd be better for Mindy and I to pick cases that neither of us had heard of before. So, Mindy, what are you going to be talking about? I am going to be telling the story of the mystery of the 1946 Texarkana Moonlight Murders, a.k.a. the killer that inspired the town that dreaded sundown. Which is the 1976 movie. Um, Then there was also a sequel to that movie that was made later. Correct. I am going to be discussing multiple crimes that were the inspiration for the 2008 movie, The Strangers. This is going to be a two-part episode because, honestly, my case is way more involved than I even thought it was going to be. And, well, there's just a lot to cover. Um, So we decided to do uh, my story today. And then Mindy will be telling her story about the Texarkana murders next week. But this is really my main story is a, a fascinating story that has spanned almost 40 years of investigation and there is still new evidence being followed up on and people are still investigating this case so oh, let- really quick sharon i'm sorry i don't mean to interrupt but i i'm very excited to hear about this but also kind of blown away because as you very well know um while i thought parts of the strangers the movie was scary I wasn't a huge fan overall and then you were like when you were researching this and you were texting me saying like oh my god because we I think we thought it was just going to be like this happened end of story and then you were like there is so much going on with this I'm kind of wondering why the movie wasn't a little bit better but maybe I'm going to find out when you tell your story well to be honest the movie doesn't have much to do with the main story I'm going to be telling Ah. Uh, I will get to that Uh, at the end of my story. Um, But first, I just want to go through my references really quick. IMDb, Wikipedia, Reddit, Keddy28.com, PlumasNews.com, BirthMoviesDeath.com, also ThoughtCo, The Mirror, all that's interesting, and Medium, uh, all those websites, as well as the Unresolved podcast and a People article from 2016. So, The Strangers stars Liv Tyler and Scott Speedman. It was written and directed by Brian Bertino, and if you have not seen this movie, the plot's pretty simple, yet effectively terrifying, in my opinion. I actually um, actually like this movie, although I did rewatch it and found a lot more fault with it um, when I rewatched it last week. Sharon, I'm sorry, can I just interject really quick? Because uh-huh. I, I kind of want to frame your the text that you sent me because without being too spoilery, the problem that I had with the movie is I was like, okay, even if you're terrified, nobody would ever be this stupid. And Sharon sent me this text last week that was like, well, I still like the movie, but it's kind of like exactly what not to do in this situation. <laughs> like, <laughs> It is. It's a good example of 
watch this movie so that you know if you're ever in a home invasion do not do any of the things that were done in this movie that's Um, like changed my perspective of the movie completely but honestly the first time I saw it it scared the shit out of me I'm not gonna lie and Spencer actually refuses to ever watch that movie with me again because it scared the shit out of him the first time that he watched it I do want to interject though part of the reason why I don't want to watch it is because I, I tend to just want to watch new things that I haven't seen before. And yes, the movie is very realistic in terms of, you know, there's no supernatural or monsters or anything like that. So it's very realistic in human that way. Human monsters. Well, sure, human monster, but those are realistic. Um, but so, yeah, I, I was super scared. But I think if I were to watch it again, because I know what's happening and know what's coming, I wouldn't be nearly as scared. But I have no reason to watch this movie again, especially because it's super scary and <laughs> realistic. But anyways, for those of you who haven't seen it, um, <laughs> it's about a, it's a really simple plot. A young couple staying in an isolated summer home are terrorized by three unknown masked assailants for no apparent reason other than they were home. So there are three major things that inspired Bertino to write The Strangers. First, according to Bertino... As a kid, I lived in a house on a street in the middle of nowhere in Crowley, Texas. One night while our parents were out, somebody knocked on the front door and my little sister answered it. At the door were some people asking for someone that didn't live there. We later found out these people were knocking on doors in the area and if no one was home, breaking into the houses. Bertino also cites inspiration from the Manson family murders after reading Helter Skelter as a child. Great book to read as a kid. Bertino (laughs) said, I was thinking about the Tate murders and realizing that these detailed descriptions had painted a story of what it was like in the house with the victims. But none of the victims knew about the Manson family or why it was happening to them. I got really fascinated with telling the victim's tale and not filling it in with an FBI profile and not filling it in with finding out that somebody's grandmother beat them and now they want to kill everyone. He wanted to create a plot that looks at what could happen if you were home and a group just decided to break in. It could happen to anyone. The characters in The Strangers ask why, but the truth is there's no reason and that's what's so terrifying. Lastly, he was inspired by the Ketty Cabin murders, a horrific quadruple homicide that left three members of a family and a family friend dead. The murders took place in Northern California in 1981 and remains unsolved to this day. Although, according to who you talk to, they may say differently. I just want to give a trigger warning. Uh, There is going to be some description of the brutality of the murders, including the murder of children. But I do think it's important to understand the brutality of these murders, because to me, it indicates that this was not just a random crime, but done by someone who actually knew the victims. It seemed very personal. Also, there are a lot of details in this case. I could spend probably 20 episodes covering everything but we can't do that so I'm just gonna be mentioning the main highlights and the many supporting details including recent discoveries that have been made over 30 years after the murders were committed Uh, but I'm not gonna be able to cover everything I know there are a lot of people still investigating this case, both real detectives and citizen detectives, so please don't get mad at me if I leave parts out. I know it's all very important, but I'm not going to be able to cover all the details in just one episode. And finally, I just want to give a big disclaimer that there is a lot of stuff that I'm about to say that is all allegedly, because there are possible suspects that are still alive. There's also members of the victims' families and also the suspects' families that are still alive. And there's one thing that I've learned after researching this case is that this case is very contentious. So let's begin. Ketty was a small defunct railroad town in the Sierra Nevada mountains, located in Plumas County in Northern California. In 1978, Ketty attempted to revive the town by rebranding it as a resort town, a place where people could stay and enjoy hiking or other outdoor activities. Ketty is an extremely small town that has had a population of less than 100 people for decades now, which was steadily declining. 
In November 1980, 36-year-old Glenna Sharp, who went by Sue, and her five children, 15-year-old son John, 14-year-old daughter Sheila, 12-year-old daughter Tina, 10-year-old Rick, and 5-year-old Greg, moved to Ketty. They left Connecticut and were traveling cross-country trying to escape James Sharp, Sue's abusive husband. One article described Ketty as a, quote, town where people usually ended up when everything else in their life had gone wrong. I also think that's their town motto on the billboard when you pull into town. It's okay. It's his wife or (laughs) sister. It's okay. It's his sister. (gasps) Oh, man. Yeah. Shit's Creek joke. All right. Anyways. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Back to the story. Sue Sharp and her five kids had rented cabin 28 at the Ketty Resort. The owner of the resort had turned the cabins into low-income housing due to financial trouble he was having renting out the cabins to tourists. It was a small two-bedroom cabin. The two youngest boys slept in one room, and Mom and the girls slept in the other room. Or sometimes, Sue would sleep on the pull-out couch in the living room. John, the oldest son, had a room to himself in the basement. The basement was only accessible through an exterior door and stairwell. This meant that the back door was almost always unlocked so that John could easily access the bathroom, kitchen, etc. Times were pretty rough for the Sharp family. Sue supported her family of six on just a $250 monthly check she received from the Navy, her husband was a veteran, food stamps, a part-time job at the Quincy Elks Lodge, and also a small stipend she received for being enrolled in the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, also known as CETA, C-E-T-A, which trained workers and provided them with jobs in the public service. Sue was described as a quiet homebody who mostly kept to herself. Her children were enrolled in school down in Quincy, just six miles south of Ketty, and had made friends in the area. All in all, it had been a positive move for the family. April 11th started off as a typical day for the family. The oldest son, John, spent the day in Quincy with his friend Dana Wingate, age 17, who had plans to spend the night at the Sharp home that evening. Sheila Sharp, the oldest daughter, planned to spend the night next door with a friend in cabin 27, which belonged to the Seabolt family. That family included James Sr., his wife Zanita, daughters Alyssa and Paula, and son James Jr., also known as Jamie. Cabin 27 was about 15 feet away from the Sharp cabin. Tina Sharp headed to cabin 27 to watch TV with her sister and the Seabolts, but returned to her cabin, number 28, around 10 p.m. Sue had agreed to let her two youngest sons, Ricky and Greg, have their friend, 12-year-old Justin Eason, spend the night at their cabin. Justin also had not lived in Ketty for very long. He, along with his mother Marilyn and stepfather Marty Smart, arrived in Ketty around the same time as the Sharp family, November of 1980. The family lived near the Sharps in cabin 26. It's known that... John Sharp and his friend Dana hitchhiked home from Quincy that night and arrived home sometime between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m. Around 1.30 a.m., a woman and her boyfriend, who were in a cabin next door to the Sharp's cabin, were awoken by what they described as muffled screams. The sound was so disturbing that the couple got up and looked around. When they were unable to determine where the screams were coming from, they went back to bed. Around 7.45 a.m. the next morning, Sheila returned from her sleepover to get ready for church and discovered a horrific scene. On the living room floor lay three bloody, brutalized bodies. Her mother, her brother John, and John's friend Dana. The trio was attacked so violently and viciously that blood splatter dotted the ceilings, walls, furniture, and soaked the carpet. Oh my god. Sheila ran screaming back to the neighboring cabin where she had spent the night. The Seabolts did not have a telephone, so Sheila and Mrs. Seabolt went to the nearest working phone across the street at the landlord's cabin, number 25, and called the Plumas County Sheriff's Office. The Seabolt's son, Jamie, went back to cabin 28 to see if there were any survivors. Miraculously, it appeared that 10-year-old Rick, 5-year-old Greg, and the boy's friend, Justin Eason, Remember his name, because we will be coming back to him in a bit. Noted. 
They had slept through the ordeal in an adjoining bedroom and were clueless as to what had happened. It seems almost impossible that screams woke the neighbors, but did not disturb the boys that were in the same house where the screams most likely originated. Jamie Siebel made the three boys exit the house through their bedroom window to avoid having them see the gruesome scene in the next room. Deputy Hank Clement was the first to arrive on scene. He did a quick search of the cabin, confirming the murders. When he opened the front door, he saw the bodies on the green carpeted floor. Each victim had been bound at the wrists and ankles with several feet of differently sized medical tape, electrical appliance wires removed from appliances in the home, and extension cords. There was no medical tape at the Sharp home before the murders, indicating that one of the attackers brought it with to help bind the victims. John was lying on his back on the living room floor closest to the front door. There was blood caked around his neck and face. John's hands were bound by white cloth medical tape and his ankles were bound by an extension cord. Next to John lay Dana, lying face down with his head on a sofa cushion. His ankles were firmly tied with an electrical cord that linked him to John. It appeared his wrist bindings had either been cut or he somehow managed to free himself. Sue Sharp was found lying adjacent to Dana, very close to the sofa, and was covered in a yellow blanket. She was lying on her right side, naked from the waist down, but with no signs of sexual assault. There's evidence that someone rearranged her from an indecent position. That's probably when she was covered. Lone pools of blood on the living room floor and on the sofa pillows indicate the boy's bodies were also moved and staged. Sue's wrists and ankles were loosely wrapped in narrow medical tape with an electrical cord wrapped tightly around that. Her wrists and ankles were wrapped a third time by an even stronger electrical cord, which extended to and tightly bound her ankles. Her legs and knees were drawn up towards her chest because another length of cord between her ankles and wrists was so taut. Sue was also tightly gagged. A blue bandana and her underwear were shoved into her mouth and medical tape was applied over them. Both Sue and John Sharp had been beaten with a claw hammer and stabbed multiple times in their bodies with their throats cut. Dana Wingate was also beaten, but with a different hammer. Signs showed that he had been strangled to death. There were no defensive wounds on John or Dana and no blood under the medical tape. This suggested that they were bound, then murdered. Sue's body showed signs of the exact opposite. She had fought back. There were also marks left on Sue's head matching that of the butt of a Daisy Powerline 880 pellet gun. More evidence found at the crime scene included a hammer, knife, and a bent steak knife from the Sharp family kitchen that was so bent it looked like a pocket knife. There was also a bloody footprint that was discovered in the yard, knife marks in some of the walls of the home, Blood was discovered on both bedroom doors and outside on the handrail of the steep back stairs, and drops of blood on Tina's bed. The bottoms of Sue's bare feet and the soles of one of the boy's shoes were also covered in blood, suggesting that they were mobile and stepped in it at some point. It was said that Justin tried to tell the police the next day that 12-year-old Tina was missing, but it took law enforcement half a day to realize that Tina was actually gone. She was last seen by the Siebel's at their cabin less than 12 hours prior. The FBI also became involved in the investigation because it was believed that Tina Sharp was abducted. There were no signs that robbery was the motive, as nothing was missing and the cabin hadn't been ransacked. It immediately became obvious that someone had entered cabin 28 intending to murder someone. It was a targeted crime and one that was deeply personal. There were also no signs of forced entry, which suggested the victims knew their killers, although, as I stated earlier, the back door was rarely locked. Word of the murders had spread through Ketty and the rest of Plumas County. Life changed dramatically in 1981 for this whole community. Everybody was suspicious of everybody and afraid of everybody else. Residents had very little trust or confidence in the sheriff's department before the murders, and in many ways, there was even less trust following the deaths. 
Tina's body was not found until 1984 when the cranium part of a skull was found about 80 miles from Ketty near Feather Falls. Testing confirmed that the bones belonged to Tina Sharp. There was also an empty medical tape dispenser and clothes found with the remains. We'll come back to that later, so remember that. Noted. Almost immediately, two suspects were identified in the case. The first was Marty Smart, the stepfather of Justin Eason, the boy who spent the night with the two youngest sharp boys the night of the murders. The second suspect was a man named John Bobaday, who went by Bo. Both men had criminal histories, but Bo's background was particularly disturbing. It is said that he had been involved in organized crime in Chicago. He served time for armed robbery in Chicago's Statesville Prison in Joliet. He also served time in California. Marty, a Vietnam veteran, suffered from PTSD. Marty and Bo met shortly before the murders at a VA hospital in Reno, where Bo was also being treated for PTSD. Bo had been staying with the Smarts as a house guest. And remember those details because we will revisit those later as well. According to Marty Smart, on the night of the murders, he, his wife Marilyn, and Bobaday decided to go to the Backdoor Bar in Caddy for a few drinks. Marty worked as a chef at the Backdoor Bar, but it was his night off. On the way to the bar, the group stopped in on Sue Sharp and asked if she had wanted to join them for drinks. Sue told them no, so they left for the bar. At the bar, Smart complained angrily to the manager about the music that was playing. They left shortly afterwards and went back to the Smart's cabin. Marilyn watched television, then went to bed. Marty, still angry about the music, called the manager and complained again. He and Bo then went back to the bar for more drinks. It is said that when the two men went back to the bar, they were now wearing three-piece suits and sunglasses, and basically to dress like this to go to a dive bar in Ketty was something that would definitely stand out to the other patrons of the bar. So a lot of speculation is that they did this purposely just to be noticed so that they could establish an alibi. Ah, okay. Thinking that they now had prime suspects in the case, Plumas County Sheriff Doug Thomas contacted the Department of Justice in Sacramento. The DOJ in Sacramento sent two men, Special Agents Harry Bradley and P.A. Krim from the division's Organized Crime Unit. Normally, an organized crime unit deals with things like mafia or drug trafficking, human trafficking, things like that. So it was kind of weird that they sent people from the Organized Crime Unit instead of sending someone from homicide to investigate Hmm. okay interesting the two doj investigators bradley and crim conducted interviews with martin and marilyn smart and also beau during the interview with marilyn she told the investigators that she and martin separated the day after the murders she said that he was short-tempered violent and abusive especially after drinking Marilyn said that her husband allegedly tried to run her and her son over one time, and in 1980, he allegedly pulled a knife on her and threatened to cut her. After the interviews with the Smarts and Bobaday were completed and Martin was polygraphed, the DOJ investigators decided that none of them were involved with the murders. Marilyn Smart was interviewed again at a later date. At that time, she told investigators that Marty Smart hated John Sharp. She also admitted early in the morning of April 12th, she saw Marty burning something in the fireplace, but she didn't know what it was. Bradley and Krim were accused of sloppy work and failing to fact check or pursue clarification for obvious discrepancies made by both of the Smarts and Bobaday. Bobaday said that he had worked as a Chicago police officer for 18 years, but retired after being shot while in the line of duty. This was an obvious lie which could have been quickly spotted had Krim paid attention to Bobaday's date of birth. Bo also lied about how long he had lived in Ketty by adding two weeks to the timeline. He also said Marilyn was his niece, which was a lie. Bo claimed Marilyn was awake when he and Smart came home after their second trip to the bar. Had anyone been paying attention, they would have caught that it contradicted what Marilyn had said, which was that she was asleep when the two men came home. 
Bo said he never met Sue Sharp, which contradicted what was previously said about the three of them stopping by the Sharp house and inviting her for a drink on the way to the bar. It was also said that Bo had a crush on Sue, and the night of the murders, he had made advances on her, which she rejected. Bradley and Krim showed a similar lack of energy when interviewing Marty Smart. In one interview, Marty said that his stepson, Justin Eason, might have seen something on the night of the murders, quote, without me detecting him, end quote. The investigators either missed the implications in Smart's slip-up, or they weren't listening. Or maybe they just chose to overlook it. Who knows? Smart talked to the investigators about the hammers that were used in the murder, adding that he had recently lost his own hammer. According to the Unresolved podcast, Marty and Bo were questioned together, which is the exact opposite of how you should be interviewed (laughs) by authorities during a murder case. Um, Yeah, so there's that. But since the investigators believed that the pair had no involvement in the murders, they were no longer prime suspects. Marty Smart quickly moved away and eventually settled in Oregon, and Bo returned to Chicago, where he scammed several police officers out of money, was caught, and almost did prison time again, but died in 1988 before being incarcerated. Marty Smart died from cancer in June of 2000 in Portland, Oregon. So now let's go back to Justin Eason, the stepson of Marty Smart. Early on, investigators believe that Justin either knew more than he was telling the police or he had blocked out most of his memories due to the trauma of seeing the attacks. They also suspected that Justin touched at least one of the bodies since blood was found on the inside doorknob of the bedroom that the boys were staying in. As time went on, Justin began to change his story. He had told the investigators that he was asleep during the murders, as were the two other boys, and that they did not hear anything. During one of two hypnosis sessions, Justin described a dream that he had involving a boat and what was happening to the passengers on that boat. Under hypnosis, Justin describes the day he'd had. He said that later in the day, Sheila and Tina were next door at the Siebold's house, Tina came home about 7.30 p.m. to wash the dishes and then returned next door. Sheila was spending the night there, but Tina had to return home. Justin said that Tina returned to the cabin around 9.30 p.m. and went to bed. Justin, Ricky, and Sue Sharp were known to have been watching The Love Boat on TV that night before going to bed at 10 p.m. That seems to be the theme as he described an alleged dream in which two men were involved in a fight with John and Dana and they had got thrown overboard. In the dream, one of the men had a pocket knife in his right hand and cut Sue Sharp in the chest. He also said that the same man had a hammer in his other hand. Sheriff Thomas conducted the first hypnosis session with Justin. This is significant as we will see later when we learn more about Thomas. Thomas attended two different training sessions to learn hypnosis, especially to get someone to recall witnesses. According to the transcript of an interview in 2003, Thomas said that he did the hypnosis with Justin. Under hypnosis on May 19, 1981, this time by Dr. Jerry Dash, a psychologist at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, Justin told of Tina Sharp. He said Tina allegedly woke up and appeared in the living room to see what was going on. She was carrying a blanket. According to what Justin said under hypnosis, a man allegedly grabbed her and carried her through the kitchen and down the back stairs. The man then returned, removed a hunting knife that someone had stuck in one of the walls, and picked up the blanket and left again. Another time while being polygraphed, Eason told the polygrapher that he thought that he saw the murders. He said that a noise woke him up and he got up and looked through the door into the living room. He said he saw Sue Sharp laying on the sofa and that there were two men standing in the middle of the room. He described the men, one with black hair and dark glasses, the other with brown hair and wearing army boots. John Sharp and Dana came into the room and began arguing with the two men. A fight broke out and Dana tried to escape out through the kitchen, but the man with the brown hair hit him with a hammer. 
John was being attacked by the man with the black hair, and Sue tried to help John. Justin said at this point he hid behind the door. He then saw the men tying up John and Dana. He said the man with the black hair used a pocket knife to cut Sue in the middle of her chest. Justin worked with a sketch artist and came up with composites of the two men. In more recent years, according to Plumas County Sheriff's Special Investigator Mike Gamberg and Plumas County Sheriff Greg Hagwood, the Sheriff's Office and the California DOJ blew it in 1981. Leads weren't filed and evidence wasn't checked. Some of the evidence was even ignored. You could take someone just coming out of the academy and they'd have done a better job of investigating the case, they said. In 2013, Sheriff Hagwood was now in his third year of office. The murders of Sue Sharp and the two teenage boys and Tina still haunted him. These were boys he went to school with. Hagwood personally knew them. He was also familiar with Cabin 28. In earlier years, he had spent nights there with a friend and his family. Hagwood knew what was and wasn't happening with the case. Although still open, it wasn't a priority. His personal connections led Hagwood to resurrect the case and to provide the resources and time needed to solve it. That's when Hagwood asked Gamberg, a private investigator, if he'd like to take over the investigation. Gamberg also knew the two boys. He was their coach in martial arts and other activities. Dana Wingate was at his house just the day before he died. Oh, man. Gamberg accepted the job and the challenge of following the evidence and leads that still existed. Box after box of evidence, file drawers filled with information and other evidence were all in disarray. The original case history log, who did what and on what date, was gone. Physical evidence taken from cabin 28 is still in storage, including the living room carpet, wall board, and other items marked with blood and other potential evidence, but it was disorganized and some of the evidence has been contaminated. He found one bag of evidence that was never opened. The items inside were never entered into evidence. Another piece of perhaps vital evidence that Gamberg discovered was in an envelope that was never opened. It contained a tape recording of an anonymous caller to the Butte County Dispatch. The call came just after someone discovered what we know now was Tina's remains. The discovery came almost three years to the day after Tina's disappearance by a man out hunting bottles. The anonymous caller said that he was watching the news about the discovery at Father Falls down Highway 70 from Ketty. He said, quote, I was wondering if they thought of the murder up in Ketty, up in Plumas County a couple years ago, where a 12-year-old girl was never found. End quote. Gamberg is having professionals analyze the tape recording, comparing that male voice to recorded voices of others identified as potential or known suspects. As with other related evidence, the process of scientific evaluation is slow. Gamberg thinks the tape was deliberately ignored when it arrived at the Plumas County Sheriff's Office. Another discovery was that years after the murders, Marilyn Smart said that she discovered a bloody jacket in her basement that she thought may have belonged to Tina. She handed it over to authorities, but police had no record of it in their case files. Just three years after reopening the case, Gamberg was talking to the media about new evidence that was recovered, namely a hammer that matches one Marty said went missing before the murders and a hunting knife recovered in Ketty. Two years after that, Gamberg announced that there's more evidence that links a living person or persons to the crime. Neither Hagwood nor Gamberg are willing to divulge specifics on whom they're watching, but new evidence has given them solid leads. This info comes from a three-part article from the Plumas News online paper from 2018, which I recommend going online and finding that and reading all three parts. Lots of of information, great summary of the case, uh, really good details about like all the new evidence that was found. Sharon, you keep going. I'll be back. I'm going to uh, go read something. <laughs> we will we will put links to all my references in the episode description, though, so you can find those there. Marty allegedly also cheated on his wife, Marilyn. Gamberg believes that one of the women he was allegedly involved with 
was Sue Sharp, and that John Sharp, his younger sister Tina, and Dana Wingate got in the way, and for that, they died. In 2016, Gamberg told the Sacramento Bee and others that a counselor at the VA in Reno came forward with information concerning Marty Smart. He said Smart confessed while he was his patient. This occurred during a seventh appointment with Smart, just weeks after the Kitty murders. Smart allegedly wanted to clear his conscience. Conscious? Conscience? Conscience. I cannot. I have a hard time saying that word. Wanted to clear his conscience. There you go. And admitted, and admitted to killing Sue and her daughter, Tina. Allegedly, Smart said, I killed the woman and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys. According to the counselor's recollection from May 1981, when asked why Tina didn't run away, Marty indicated he incapacitated her, which meant that possibly Tina was already dead at that point. When asked for motive, allegedly Smart told the counselor he was convinced Sue was responsible for Marilyn wanting a divorce. Smart told his counselor that he had to kill Tina because, quote, she saw the whole thing, I couldn't have a witness, end quote. The counselor said he advised Marty to turn himself in, and the counselor said his reaction to that was he just smiled. Huh. When asked about the polygraph test that Smart passed soon after the murders, Smart said to his counselor, I beat it. Those things are easy to beat. I was lying and they let me go. The counselor told Gamberg that he did alert the authorities at that time and he was surprised that it did not lead to an arrest. The counselor said that he called the DOJ and asked for the special agents that were working on the case, Bradley and Krim. He said that he told them of the confession and he was told to go and meet with the partners. Gamberg said that the agents did meet with the counselor, but they dismissed his allegations as hearsay. What? Which, yeah, is basically just more evidence that the Ketty murders were part of a, a cover-up for some reason. This wasn't incompetence. This was something else. Uh-huh. Uh, it might have been a little bit of both, but... Yeah, right. Um, Boobaday was probably a person of interest to the DOJ, and they, in part, were helping him, but more than likely, it was part of a bigger conspiracy. Was Bo a possible police informant with ties to organized crime? Was this the reason that they sent organized crime investigators instead of homicide investigators? Because they wanted to cover up the crime to protect their asset, and basically, the Sharp family was just collateral damage? Allegedly, Bo had ties to Al Capone and Sam Giancana. And even way beyond that, rumors of him being involved in the CIA drugs for arm deals. Uh, allegedly, maybe Coke might have been trafficked in and out of Plumas County, and Marty and Bo may have been involved. Uh, this is all speculation. Um, mm. There's some evidence, I guess, that supports it. I'm not going to get into all this in this episode, though. It's out there if you want to do the research on your own. But that's like a whole other avenue that I'm not going to get down. Yeah. Um, Smart also went on to tell the counselor that he and Sheriff Doug Thomas were friends. Remember, this is the guy who performed the hypnosis yes. on, on his stepson, Justin. Reports say that Thomas lived in cabin 28 prior to the Sharps' arrival. Smart said that Thomas even allowed him to live in cabin 28 with him for a time when Smart was having marital problems with Marilyn. It has also been uncovered that Smart may not have had PTSD and that another man named D. Lake, who also might be linked to the murders, uh, also a whole other avenue I'm not going to go down right now, but he might have suggested to Smart to claim that he had PTSD as a way to get veterans assistant and possible benefits. Smart did serve in the Army in Vietnam, but he was a cook on a military base near Saigon, one of the safest places to be during the war, and according to Smart's counselor, Marty admitted that he was never fearful and that he had an easy tour in the military. There are also no records that Boobaday was ever even at the VA in any of its medical departments. 
therefore making the claims that Marty and Bo met at the VA highly questionable. Once again, there's a lot more to this, which I'm not going to get into. Another discovery following the murders, Marty wrote Marilyn a handwritten letter that read, quote, I've paid the price for your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we are through? Great. What else do you want? If that isn't a confession, it's damned sure close, Gamberg said. In an article from April 2018, Mike Gamberg was interviewed and stated that a segment of tape containing identifiable DNA was found on the floor near the body of Sue Sharp in 1981. The DNA matches that of a known living suspect. He's had the DNA for several years, but it wasn't until recently that he obtained needed samples and found the match. It's possible that as many as six people were involved in one capacity or another in the murders and the cover-up. Most of the suspects wore gloves, Gamberg said. Apparently, as the suspects bludgeoned and stabbed their victims to death, none of the suspects were injured or left their own blood at the scene. While two of the lead suspects, Marty Smart and John Bobaday, are now dead, others are alive and have been identified, said Greg Hagwood. Remember the driver that gave John and Dana a ride home from Quincy the night of the murders, Mindy? Sure do. Uh, So who that driver was had previously been a mystery, but Gamberg has identified the individual and has interviewed her, and she is not considered a suspect. Gamberg said his source dropped John and Dana off of the cabin between 10 and 11 p.m. She said the boys went to the front door and that there was no light outside the cabin, but that she could see light from inside the cabin. She said it was really eerie, and she was afraid and uncomfortable and left immediately. On March 24, 2016, a hammer was found that matches the description of the hammer that Marty Smart claimed he was missing two days after the murders. According to Sheriff Hagwood, the location it was found, it would have been intentionally put there. It would not have been accidentally misplaced. So let's talk about Sheila Sharp and the remaining Sharp children. Right after the murders, the remaining Sharp children were sent to live with an aunt because I think their dad did not want them. So they went to go live with... Sorry, the dad sounded like he was a stand-up guy, right? Because that's why she left him in the first place? (laughs) Yeah, total total stand-up guy. And also... I didn't even mention this earlier, but um, there were allegations that he also may have sexually assaulted the two girls, Sheila and Tina. So probably best that they did not go to live with him. Agreed. (laughs) But anyways, uh, the Sharp children were sent to live with an aunt, but she was already overwhelmed as she had several children of her own. Eventually, Sheila and her siblings were placed in foster care, first together, then apart. She was forced to become sort of a surrogate mother to her younger surviving siblings and made it her mission to protect them and insulate them from the horrors of what had happened as much as she possibly could. Life for Sheila had been a struggle, dotted with victories, joys, and reasons to celebrate. She said that being able to close the case would be a relief for the family and a small bit of closure. But what she wants more than anything is for people to remember her mother's kindness more than they remember the violent fate that befell her. In a 2016 interview, she said, quote, I would like my children and grandkids to know that she was a very caring and kind person. She would have done anything for them and probably spoiled them rotten, end quote. Aww. Sheila said she had blocked out many of her memories from the morning of April 12, 1981, but the quadruple murders have continued to have a profound effect on her life, obviously. It's devastating. Like, I couldn't even imagine. Oh, I'm surprised she's a functioning adult, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Sheila is now in her mid-50s. She is married. She has three children of her own and also grandchildren. Aw, good for Sheila. So, Mindy, I'm sure you and everyone else is wondering what actually happened on the night of the murders. Just a little. 
<laughs> that is the question of the day. Uh, one of the predominant theories is that Sue Sharp was encouraging Marilyn Smart to leave her husband, Marty, which enraged Marty to the point of murder. So he called on Bo to help him. Um, don't know how much of that actually played a part. There's also rumors that possibly Sue was having an affair with Marty and that Marilyn may have also been involved in the murders, the three of them, along with some other suspects. Uh, there's rumors that it was possibly drug-related, as I mentioned earlier. Apparently, or allegedly, Marty hated John. And there is some rumors or speculation that when John and Dana were in Quincy, they were at a party where there was drugs involved. So did the murders have something to do with drug trade or drug trafficking through the county? I'm not sure. Um, I think I, on the, the podcast, the Unresolved podcast, there is mention of that. And I don't think there was any evidence that there was actually any drugs at the party that they were at. So who really knows? Uh, investigator Gamberg believes on the night of the 11th that the perpetrators were already with Sue when the teenage boys arrived home unexpectedly mm. and walked into what was going on and probably tried to help her. There was a rough, brutal fight, but the perpetrators were there for a while. It was not over with quickly. It's Gamberg's opinion, based on what he knows, that Sue was the last one alive and that she was made to witness what happened to her son and his friend and probably saw what happened to her daughter as well. Cabin 28 was eventually demolished in 2004, but some of the other cabins in that area still remain there is a website, keddy28.com, that is a forum and a community based around exposing the truth behind the Keddy murders. They've done a ton of research. They, I skimmed through the website as much as I could without being a member of the group. And honestly, a lot of what I discussed earlier may not be completely accurate. The main person who runs the webpage goes by the name DMAC. He has had access to crime scene photos, case files. He's actually gone to the locations in Ketty where the story takes place, also to where Tina's body was found, and is actually working with investigator Mike Gamberg to solve the case. So there is way more to the story than I can get into, as I stated in the beginning. But mm -hmm. if you are interested in this story and want to help bring justice to the Sharp family, then I can suggest maybe looking into this group if you want to be a citizen detective, they're on Facebook as well. They've discussed a lot of other key players in this case and potential suspects that I did not mention at all. I only had a week <laughs> to do the research on this case. And honestly, if I knew how involved it was, I probably would have chosen to do another case. So I apologize to all the investigators who have been involved with working on this case for years if I did a terrible job. But hopefully the truth will come out one day and the case will get solved. Hey, I think you, you're doing a great job. And if nothing else, it's making people interested in wanting to actually go seek out more answers. So well done. I hope so. I hope so. I would. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be following this case from now on to see um, if there's any new leads. I mean, apparently they have DNA of people who were possibly at the house, potential suspects the night of the murders. I don't really know why arrests haven't been made. The most recent articles I could find on this case were from 2018. Mm. So I haven't seen any recent information that um, any arrests have been made. Uh, just a couple, I guess, interesting facts. Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole were once looked into as possible suspects and investigated by the Plumas County Sheriff's Office as being... Uh, the murders, oh. but they were actually in Florida around the time of the murders and they were eliminated as suspects. Also, Robert Joseph Silveria, a.k.a. the boxcar killer, was also looked into as a possible suspect as he was living in Quincy, California at the time of the murders. He actually confessed to the murders later, but then recanted his confession as he was in state custody at the time serving time for Grand Theft Auto. So. Huh. Yeah, that'd be kind of hard to be in both places. 
Yeah. Um, so I'm not really sure how this case inspired the strangers. The only similarities <laughs> are that the murders took place in a house in the woods. Other than that, while I was researching the story, the story seemed much more closely related to Twin Peaks to me. Mm. And I don't know if David Lynch or Mark Frost even know anything about this case or if it influenced them at all. But while I was reading, I couldn't help but notice some similarities like, you know, a small town in a wooded mountainous area where everybody knows everybody. There's drug trafficking that may be going on in the town that kind of reminded me of the whole like Leo, Hank, Jacques storyline. I could totally picture the Keddy backdoor bar looking like the roadhouse. Yeah, you have the right. FBI getting involved in the case, just like when the FBI came to investigate the murder of Laura Palmer. You know, it's just everyone has their secrets and there's this like dark underbelly of the town that may be innocent looking on the surface. So there's definitely a lot more similarities uh, between the story in Twin Peaks than The Strangers. But hey, Brian Bertino said it influenced him. So who am I to argue? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I was kind of thinking that, too, because small towns like that, yeah, I I mean, everybody's involved with everybody in one way or another. So when you had said that they had found evidence that possibly six different people had been involved in, like, the crime, like, the killing and possible cover-up or whatever, I was going to comment, oh, so, like, the whole town? Because, like, it's this tiny little hole-in-the-wall town. I mean, I think at the time the population was around, like, 60, 66 people. So, yeah, almost, like, a 10% 10 of the town. Could have been involved in the murder. Hey, or murders. You had mentioned it was Sheriff Thomas, right? Who who had hit? Who's the who did the first hypnotism of a suspect? Yes. And you said, I'm sorry. He took two classes to be able to like be certified to do that or be considered. Well, I don't think it's like a certification necessarily. I mean, I'm not sure. He he learned how to do it so that he could do it to try and gain evidence to a a possible witness. That kind of, I just can't help thinking of the people that like become a minister online. Cause, cause then the other, (laughs) the other hypnotist you said was like a psychologist, which that makes sense to me. But I think I'm utterly speechless because there's like so much that I'm, I'm, I'm just like, what the fuck? But, and I'm sorry, you probably did mention this, but I, I just, I was, there's so much my brain's spinning, but the young boys, they, is the thinking that they must've seen what happened, but just blocked it out. The young boys that survived. Uh, I don't you know what? I didn't come across anything in my research about the two sharp children. It was only about what Justin may have seen. Oh, right. Okay. The fact that his stepfather was like the number one suspect in the case is definitely strange um, and could be one of the reasons why the three boys survived was because Justin happened to be there that night. If Justin wasn't spending the night, who knows if the other two sharp boys would have also become victims. Um, It it seems with the amount of violence in the house that took place, it seems almost impossible that all three of them completely slept through everything. Yeah. So. Yeah. Who who knows? Um, I mean, one of them was, what, 10. The other one was five. They might have blocked it out. I, I, I really don't know. Um, but that's a good question. And I was um, good. I, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Justin was a little bit older. He was 12. Um, I, I think he probably tried to block some of it out. Um, so the hypnosis, what was that was why they chose to do the hypnosis in the first place was to see, you know, what he could recall from that night in case he did permanently, you know, through his conscious mind, block block those memories out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Getting back to your uh, Twin Peaks comparison, um, mm-hmm. Marty totally sounds like a Leo Johnson. Like, hot-headed, yeah. like... Abusive to his wife. Horrible, yeah. Cheated, cheated on her. Involved in, in the drug trade. Allegedly. It's all allegedly. Right, right, right. All allegedly. I, I did... 
read somewhere that one of the reasons why they went to the backdoor bar was to try and find a woman for Bo. Maybe Bo wanted a woman and they went there to try and rape Sue and she wasn't having it and fought back and they ended up murdering her and murdering the two boys who tried to stop them and murdering Tina because they couldn't leave any witnesses. Yes. I think that's a more likely scenario, but who knows? Yeah. What do you have any thoughts on the fact that, well, cause I mean, well, okay. Let me, two thoughts. Obvi- I think so- whoever did it, it was such a personal crime. I would find it hard to believe it's, you know, when you're binding someone and like stabbing them and stuff, obviously they usually say that somebody who like they, it, you know, it's a crime of passion or the person knows you, but who knows really but what did you have any thoughts on the fact that they were bound with medical tape i don't know i i'm assuming this was premeditated and that is what they had at their disposal Uh uh-huh yeah there's that that, yeah wow i'm literally as you can hear stuttering like i'm speechless i'm definitely gonna go to that website and do what i can to learn a little bit more about this because this is a rabbit hole that i think yeah i could see how you had to edit (laughs) <laughs> because I would have, like, I mean, this is hours and hours and hours of losing yourself in, you know, theories. I could, oh, wow. Good job, Sharon. Yeah. Thank you. And, yeah, it really kind of, maybe the director of The Strangers was just like, oh, I want to make a horror movie. Oh, remember that crime that happened? Maybe I'll I'll do a home invasion. Like, maybe that's all the inspiration was. Because the whole time I was like, yeah, this is not The Strangers. <laughs> Except for, like, the break-in part, but... Well, I think the second movie actually takes place in like a trailer park or something, which is a little bit more similar to Mm -hmm. the actual story. But also, as I was looking up pictures of the people and stuff, I found this movie called Cabin 28 from 2017, which the the picture actually says, (laughs) this is so weird, based on the true life murders, which inspired the strangers. And so it looks like somebody was trying to sort of combine the two, say, oh, well, this movie, The Strangers, was based on this actual true life story, but it's not really, there's no connection between those. So we're going to make one that's based on both of them because there's a picture of a guy in like this weird clown mask um, in Mm. in the picture, Um, but it only has a 3.2. Yeah, and it looks like, is this... An independent film, I'm oh, guessing. Oh, yeah. This has got to be very independent and probably very cheaply made. But it looks like they were trying to, you know, bring a little bit more attention, at least, to the actual story. Which is... Oh, wait. Is that the guy from Parks yes. and Rec? He does look familiar. <laughs> is that the guy that works in the um, the sewage department? No, it's not. It's some, someone else. Oh, uh, yeah. I know you, Joe from Sewage. Yeah. <laughs> Come, we call uh, our department the toilet party. <laughs> I I was uh, thinking, actually, I thought I had seen a movie called, like, Cabin 28 or something like that, too. But now I'm thinking that I probably am wrong about that or what, it could have been what Spencer just talked about. Yeah. I haven't seen the second Strangers movie. Christina Hendricks is in it, so I was curious to watch it. But did you guys see it? Yeah, I like it. I screamed out loud twice. Oh, I think okay. I screamed out loud twice. Maybe I'll watch that. It's I I like it. I don't know. There's a lot of hate towards it, but it scared the fucking crap out of me. I mean, yes, it's kind of like the original where it's like, all right, they do everything you shouldn't do. It's a what not to do in that situation. But there was one part that I was not expecting <laughs> and I jumped and I screamed out loud. So I like it just for that because not many movies have made me do that. There's been only two that I can think of. And one was The Conjuring 2. Oh, yeah. I wasn't so. there for the original incident, but I watched that movie with you. And I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. I'm definitely going to want to do more research. And now I'll be thinking about this for the next week, like I was with Jacqueline Wallaby. So, wait, that'll be out when we release this, right? Yeah. So that is... Everything I have to say <laughs> about the Kenny murders, uh, or I should say, that is everything I'm going to say because there's obviously way more that I could say, um, but we don't have time for that. So, yeah. Uh, thank you again, Sharon, for that story that was incredible and the fact that it's 
like sort of not the Cliff Notes version, but it's a condensed version is is mind blowing. So, uh, yeah, Thank go you. take a nap and have a, a glass of wine now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as always, thank you to all of our lovely listeners. Uh, if you have any ghost stories or knowledge about uh, the murders that Sharon just told us all about, or you know, a haunted house story, or true crimes, or UFO abductions, or anything you think might be interesting, feel free to share it with us. We would love to hear what you have to say. Um, you can email us, of course, at whorestalkhorror at gmail.com. Uh, if you are able to, please subscribe to our Patreon. If you want to have early access to episodes, hear exclusive episodes, uh, see some cool posts, and maybe receive some cool gifts. Um, and we're on all the socials, Twitter, it, uh, Instagram. Sharon does a great job with Instagram, the Facebooks, you know. So you can find all of our links in those places. So thank you once again. I hope everyone's well. We wish you all a good week, and as always, thanks, thanks for, for getting, getting creepy, creepy with us. us. Sharon, you want a beer? Uh, oh my god.